cuts are blood money. People will die. Black Lives Matter is killing Americans. Republicans want you to die quickly if you get sick. We could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. This president has radicalized so many more people than ISIS ever did. Things are going swimmingly in Afghanistan. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Welcome to The Spectacle. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Ken again, so that means this is Reel It In. Our goal is to talk about current events in a non-toxic way and deflate the news of the day as somewhat normal, somewhat sensible human beings. We want to sort through the political mess, dive headlong into the misinformation, and talk through topics how we think they should be talked about. Also, we're going to be saying things sometimes that you agree with, and sometimes we're not. But that's the whole point, so hang with us and don't stop listening if you don't agree. With every episode, we're trying to find the right answer using data and critical thinking. So feel free to let us know if we get something wrong, uh, if we should have elaborated on something more, or if we went on a crazy rant that went on too long. All that to say, one of the worst things you can do is only consume content that affirms what you already believe. So stick with us. Amen to that. And so this next topic, it's gun control. It's something everyone's talking about. It's brutal. Mostly, I think, because we're instead of talking about money or the economy, economic indicators, topics that are usually just sterile or conceptual in nature, we're now talking about people's lives and a, a weapon that can end people's lives. It's awful that this even is a topic that needs to be discussed. It's doubly awful that there are relevant events so catastrophic and frequent, we just can't ignore it. Yeah, and obviously the events we're talking about are the the tragedy in Texas where 19 children and three adults were killed. And then just before that, 13 people were shot in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. And all that happened in a 10-day span. Honestly, as a parent, I had a hard time sending my daughter to school after. And the fact that I even have to worry about my daughter's safety as she's getting on the bus is pretty messed up. So messed up. I, I think about it this way, though. For most parents... When you send your kids to school, it's like the first time you're relinquishing the control and protection that you previously had exclusively of your own kids. And when these kind of terrible things happen, that faith we have in this system, it's obviously a very important system, but the faith just totally deteriorates. And like I feel like our whole society is shaken when something so terrible happens, um, and it's obviously understandable why. And the thing is, we do get hyper-focused on guns and gun control when an event like this happens with a mass shooting. But gun violence is something that's so common, and most of the deaths don't even happen in a widely publicized shooting like these. They happen every single day. And in 2013, PBS commentator Mark Shields pointed out, more people have died via gun deaths in the U.S. since 1968 than all major U.S. battlefield conflicts combined. And you know what's crazy? I think it, we're in June now, but I think in May was when the Texas and Buffalo uh, events happened. There's There's been like 10 or more qualified mass shootings since then, you know, not in a school, not with children, but so many gun deaths since then. And it's, you know, Absolutely. water under the bridge. Yeah. And, and uh, to qualify that, so a mass shooting, uh, there's so many different definitions for it, but a mass shooting, according to the FBI standards, is uh, a shooting that involves more than four, uh, four or more people, whether they die or not. So if, yeah. if four people are struck by a bullet, that's considered a mass shooting. Probably four separate bullets, not one I, bullet. I would think so. Actually, no, I would think that if uh, two people are struck by the same bullet, that would count towards the four. How about that? Yeah. But so... One of the things that I kind of thought of with this, one of the quotes that I've seen people use very frequently with referring to gun control is uh, Benjamin Franklin's quote, where he said, they who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And one thing that I saw, I I can't remember what prompted me to, to think of this, but I was looking it up and I Googled it. And one of the first things that I saw pop up was an article titled How the World Butchered Benjamin Franklin's Quote on Liberty Versus Security. And there were a handful of articles, five or six, that were referring to research that was done by Benjamin Witten of the Brookings Institute. And essentially his argument was that we've taken it completely out of context and that this quote was in a letter to the governor on behalf of the Pennsylvania General Assembly. It had to do with a tax dispute and that Benjamin Franklin was actually on the side of the government's capability to tax when he made this quote, and that it wasn't really relevant to the way that it's used now. 
And that's a big one too, because that safety liberty quote is everywhere. Absolutely. And this one, just it just seemed fishy to me. Like I, I heard that and I was like, that just doesn't sound right. So I decided to do a little bit of digging on it. And I found the letter itself and kind of just read through it. And the context that is, so yes, it is in this letter uh, to the Pennsylvania General Assembly. Most of the content is about taxes, but he later on in the letter almost makes an aside and he starts on the topic of when does the government go too far and when is it a line too far to cross? And then he drops this quote on essential liberty and whether or not you should give any of that liberty up. And it is very clear when you read the letter, he means exactly what he's saying. There, This doesn't have to do with taxes. This doesn't have to do with the, the content of the letter. It has to do with this aside where he's talking about the government going too far. And that just kind of ignited a frustration in me where search engines kind of give you these results. And I would say at least half of the results were referring to this one particular research item by this one particular individual. And it's just false. It's just not true. So like the opposite of true, actually. Yeah. And it, and it just brought to mind the fact that uh, search engines have been under fire for intentionally tweaking their algorithms to bring information to people that are of a particular political slant when the, and it can vary from search engine to search engine, but they're intentionally filtering the information that you can see as a human being so that you might not even see the right information. And in this case, you're getting the completely wrong take. So that was really frustrating to me. I'll say someone like me, I'm I'm in my early 30s. I am primed for content that tells me what I was taught in some textbook from the 90s in public school was actually like I'm all about the revisionist history when like something new comes out and what our parents thought is actually not quite the full context. So I would read this and say, oh, heck yeah. See, we're all wrong about this quote. This is what it's actually about. And about the search engine aspect, I could be wrong, but I think it's all about traffic. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. Um, but there were a few different court cases in, I think, testimony uh, in front of Congress that showed that there was manipulation that was occurring that intentionally pivoted those results, that it wasn't that pure algorithm of traffic and mapping. They were making definitive choices about the content that they wanted people to see and modifying that algorithm in order to pivot you in certain ways. So in this case, that's very uncool. And they're framing this in a way that it's like, oh, this this guy, Benjamin Witten, he's from the Brookings Institute, which sounds super fancy. They list his accolades and they make sure to kind of build him up in these articles. And yeah, like, sure, he's got accolades, but the content that he's discussing is substantially false. It's not true. It, it contains a grain of truth so that if you kind of Google it really quickly, you see, oh, yeah, oh, okay, it was included in this letter, but the context in the letter is the key. But it takes like 20 minutes to figure this out, and people aren't going to take 20 minutes to dig into it most of the time. So it's just something that I that I kind of wanted to share because it's like very relevant, and it's something that is used a lot in gun control. So if you see an article or if somebody says that's not what Benjamin Franklin meant, slap it down. Ken read the letter. I did. I, <laughs> he knows. I read the letter. Well, that makes me curious, man. When I read... Or attempt to read something from when was Benjamin Franklin around two hundred years ago? A long time ago. I mean, how good are you at that old English uh, way of speaking? I feel like when I read stuff of that, I'm that old. It's uh, you got to look up a lot of the words. It's... You're you're talking to an accountant. This is this is my <laughs> bread and butter. I love reading. Uh, <laughs> Very dry lawyer speak, dry stuff. <laughs> well, I'm glad one of us is into it because we definitely <laughs> need that on our side. Speaking of how good we are at different things, Ken, gun knowledge and ability. Where do you place yourself? Scale of 1 to 10. Uh, scale of 1 to 10, 1 being a stormtrooper that can't hit the broadside of a barn, and 10 being, I don't know, uh, what's a good reference? Dirty you, Harry? What is Dirty Harry? <laughs> it's You don't know Dirty Harry? No. I, 50 years ago? I'm looking it up right now. Okay. Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Oh, so obvi- <laughs> the, fact obvi- that, the fact that you have to Google this immediately lowers your score by one. Um, you're right. <laughs> fair, fair. So I, I give myself a five because I grew up in a household that had guns. I'm, I'm familiar with guns. I'd say proficient in the use of them, but I'm definitely not uh, somebody who you know constantly is around them. Uh, the finer aspects of them and the finer aspects of gun law, I'm probably not as involved with. So 
maybe I'm being self-deprecating by giving myself a five, but that's what I'll go with because, you know, we're not using a, it's a sliding scale. If a pistol or a long gun just like dropped in your lap, could you use it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah, that's fair. What about you? Uh, um, well, I feel like I should caveat this and say like, I, f- I feel like it's important we're giving this assessment of ourselves because there are people who are w- way about guns who are going to like just pick apart all the wrong lingo or jargon we use and sure, sure. and and i'm in a similar boat i've i've shot guns i did a little stint with the national guard i had to like live with an m16 for two weeks i think it was which is akin to an ar-15 that was nine years ago i feel like i got pretty comfortable with it over those few weeks i had to shoot it and qualify and i, I passed the qualification but um i am not like an active gun toting aficionado. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So that's where we are. Sure. And I think you're selling yourself a little bit short too, right? You have a, a particular accolade to your name. It's not an accolade, man. Uh, <laughs> you're you're a sharpshooter, I'm, right? <laughs> I'm, I've clearly talked about it too much, if you know. Um, yeah, you know, there was like three categories when you were doing your gun qualification in boot camp and I was safely in the middle. I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't like an expert per se. So I feel like if I had to defend myself at a short range, I'd be okay. That's yes. about it. Okay. And what we're going to do with that is we might be at a five or a six, but we're going to rely on sources that actually have that knowledge and information. So I guess that's just uh, the context of where we're coming from. We're just pushing the information forward. That's all we're doing here. Absolutely. So with that context in mind, the national discussion that focuses on gun control is purely just the question it boils down to is how do we limit this gun violence? What we really want to know is What's the root cause of the violence? What do we do as a society to increase safety around guns, decrease the gun deaths and injuries, and also maintaining our quote-unquote rights as individuals? I know that's a big deal for most people. Yeah, and that's like we're we're trying to figure out how to limit this, and the discussion around liberty is a concurrent discussion in terms of maintaining your civil liberties and your ability to maintain guns. But the root cause of our discussion is how do we limit gun violence while also maintaining our liberties? And one of the common phrases that I hear a lot is, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And it can be pretty easy to get frustrated with that and say, you know, just kind of dismiss it out of hand. But if we kind of take a step back, obviously the guns aren't committing the crimes, the people are committing the crimes, but guns are one of the infinite tools that we could use to cause violence on somebody else. So it's actually pretty useful to look at violence in general first, just statistics on crime, and then we compare those statistics to violent crimes involving guns, and then that can help us decide, is the gun the problem? Is it not? Is it aiding and abetting that problem? So it's kind of useful to look at it through that lens. And really, for the purposes of the discussion on guns, statistics on murder rates are for violent crime are really the most relevant. Yeah, it would be so, it would be so easy if it lined up nicely where like the countries that have the highest violence in general, you know, also had the highest violence with guns and you would just say, well, that's just the tool they're using and it's all consistent. Uh, I have in front of me the countries with the highest homicide rate per 100,000 people. It's mostly South American countries and South Africa as well. Yeah, and the U.S. is not on this list. It's not. Um, So the countries with the highest homicide rate in general, no guns involved, the U.S. is not on this list. And this data is from the U.N. Office of Drug and Crime, and it's a study from 2018. Here's a weird statistic. Countries with wide income disparities are four times more likely to be affected by violent crime than more equitable societies. Even if you think that's too drastic or exaggerated, say it's three times or twice as likely, that's it still maintains a common thread it it feels like a root to the problem of violence yeah yeah income inequality is a buzzword that a lot of people use we're just kind of recognizing that common data point maybe it'll come into play maybe it won't um but yeah something that was worth noting yeah um and out of the estimated 250,000 and change gun-related deaths worldwide in 2019 65% occurred in just six countries Brazil, the United States, Venezuela, Mexico, India, and Colombia. Um, Notice again, poverty, not necessarily the common denominator, but you have the U.S., which leads the world in civilian gun ownership, and then most notably, South American countries and India, which was kind of surprising to me. 
like you said, poverty is not consistent there. And some people might say, well, if the U.S. has the most guns on the streets, then obviously they would have the highest gun-related incidents. That makes a lot of sense, too. But all six of those countries, I think, are on the top of the charts with income inequality. Some of the richest people live in these uh, countries, and there's some real low lows as well. Right. And then so if we pivot towards countries with the highest total gun deaths, all causes, um, and we'll get into this a little bit further um, because there's obviously different ways uh, that a gun can be involved in a gun death, right? There could be a homicide, there could be a suicide, two very different things, or it could be an accidental gun death. But so all gun related death causes in 2019, countries with the highest totals, Brazil was the highest um, with about 49,000, the US 37,000. Venezuela, 28,000. And, uh, you know, we also have Mexico, India, Colombia, the Philippines. So uh, that's just kind of that general context. But countries with the highest rate of gun violence that specifically relate to homicide, again, the U.S. not on the list. Uh, We've got El Salvador, Venezuela, Guatemala, Colombia. You know, those all kind of overshadow the United States. And a few of those countries, or maybe more than half of them, are also on just the general crime list as well like outside of guns so that at least feels comforting that you know there's a crime problem in most of these countries and the gun is the tool of choice to make that happen right there's a pretty direct correlation between violent crime and violent crime involving a gun um it's it kind of follows each other hand in hand an interesting statistic, though, is countries with the highest rates of firearm-related suicide per 100,000. Greenland in 2019 was the highest, uh, 16.3 per 100,000. The United States was second, uh, 7.12. Um, Greenland so, is on none of the other lists, too. Yeah, so that was that was really interesting. Also, Finland's on that list of top 10, and these are countries that are super north, very cold, not much sunlight. Yeah, you hear that anecdotally a a lot. I think that, you know, suicide rates are higher when there's a lot of rain or a lot of darkness. Depression in general. I think this statistic really kind of proves that out. It's not just an anecdote. It's statistically viable. Right. One thing that I found really interesting that I wouldn't have expected, suicides accounted for more than half of the gun-related deaths in the U.S. I would not have thought that. Yeah. And that data is pretty consistent. Since 1996, when the data was tracked more consistently, the makeup uh, with gun-related deaths is almost uniformly between 50 and 60% suicide, 40 to 50% homicide, and under 5% is accidental or some other cause. I'm actually surprised the accidental list was so small. I would think it'd be yeah, a little I would have thought that it would be higher. Um, like, I think if we went off just based off of what I hear in the news, I would think 80% was homicide. You know. 15% was su- well I, I don't know I'm I'm just making that this feels up, right but, no, you know honestly yeah. the way that the news plays it out it would seem like we have a serious gun homicide problem and we clearly we do but I'm so, we're talking comparatively with the world right in, in reality right. when we're talking about solutions for gun related violence clearly gun related suicides needs to be a way bigger topic of conversation than what it is you almost never hear about that and that just really brings up the fact that we have to treat the different causes of gun violence in different ways. The solution to prevent gun-related suicides is not going to be the same solution for a mass shooting of a school, which is also not going to be the same as a domestic violence incident. It's not going to be the same as any of these other things. So we have to take those individually and come up with solutions for them separately uh, from the other ones. So interesting statistics here is that uh, so eight in 10 U.S. murders in 2020 involved a firearm. So 80 percent of U.S. murders involved a firearm. And then if we kind of take that statistic and compare it to some of the lowest percentages, the U.K. had, I think, the lowest percent of homicides uh, using a gun with four percent. So four percent versus 80 percent. So people in the U.K. are using alternative methods to commit their homicides as opposed to using a gun. We would have to find out, did homicides decrease after guns were taken off the streets, or did they stay exactly the same, but with a different mode, a different weapon? That's the thing. So there is actually, from the same source, there's a different chart that shows the number of homicides per 100,000 people in the population. 
and they were statistically insignificant in difference between the number of actual murders that occurred. So they just found a different way to murder people. Sure, sure. So what do we do with this data? Uh, It kind of seems like the U.S. has higher rates of gun-related violence than some of the most developed nations, but nearly half of those are from suicide. More than half. Right, and other countries, other non-developed nations with higher rates of violent crime seem to have far greater rates of gun deaths. It almost seems like the data has very little to do with school shootings or the things that we think of most commonly, and they have to link to more separate categories of gun-related deaths like we were talking about before. Uh, Like you say, the problem, it seems to be gangs-related crime and drugs. According to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the risk of being killed is, get a load of this, 60 times greater among young gang members than in the general population. And that data is a little bit fluffy, right? Because, you know, what exactly defines a young gang member? But the fact that it's 60 times greater, your risk of being killed by a gun is 60 times greater if you are involved in a gang versus the general population. That is a very telling statistic. All of the data that we've kind of looked at here shows that there is a tie between propensity for violent crime and gun-related violent crime. If you are involved in gun-related violent crime, you have a way higher tendency of getting killed by a gun um, than someone who is not involved in that crime, which makes sense. Um, So there's another uh, data point that we grabbed from uh, worldpopulationreview.com, a study in 2018. Countries with the most school shootings, right? So now we're pivoting towards school shootings in 2018. In this study, which was published by CNN, The United States was listed as having 288 school shootings that year. The next one on the list was Mexico with eight. That's pretty ridiculous, right? That's a a crazy disparity with the number of school shootings. But if we look at this a little bit further, and you wouldn't see this by the study that's posted by CNN uh, immediately, if you dig into it a little bit further, there's an enormous caveat in the tiny little subtext at the bottom. This data only included shootings that were reported via traditional news media channels, which doesn't seem necessarily like that would be a big deal, but it really is. If we look at state media for different countries, the amount of control and corruption that they have over what they're reporting is pervasive. We know that the United States uh, is reporting on these things And you're definitely seeing these things in the news media, but you're not necessarily going to see this reported from other countries. The reason why Afghanistan is only reporting three school shootings, I mean, I don't even know what the state of their news media is, but it's definitely less developed than the United States. Yeah, I would even venture a guess and say the more authoritarian the government is as well, they would stomp out a lot of that stuff getting to the general public. and. So like one, um, faulty governments or or authoritarian governments or countries that have crumbling societies or poverty-stricken countries will probably are not great at reporting any of these statistics in general. So that's unfortunate. And and we're not saying at all that uh, this data statistic isn't telling us something. So even if we are saying that this is a little bit misleading and we kind of correct for some of the data, clearly the United States has a mass shooting problem related to schools. But the issue is, is that when you you're using a a statistic or a methodology that isn't consistent or could have significant flaws like this, it undermines people's trust in data. Um, So I absolutely think that that's something that should be reported on and we should be able to see that information. And it's clearly telling us that we need to do something differently in the United States. But the data is not accurate or as usable as we would like it to be. A general guideline. I, I will I will at least give the writers of this some credit and say at least there is a caveat at the bottom. At least they are saying, recognize that these numbers probably are not quite accurate. But, but you know, but at the bottom of the- But they could probably put it in the title, right? Sure, like instead sure. of putting it in the tiny subtext on the bottom, say school shootings reported by the media for that particular country- in this year like that would that would solve everything right and and you know what on that list is canada and france with a total school shooting 
for January 2009 to May 2018 each had two. I would say those are both freeish societies that none of those things would go under the radar. They would have to be reported. Agreed. Um, and that's agree. dramatic from our U.S.'s 288. But this kind of brings up this chicken and egg conundrum on the media in school shootings where is there more reporting in America on school shootings because there are more school shootings? Or are there more school shootings in America because of such extensive reporting on them? A lot of the mass shootings that occur in the U.S., they're trying to gain notoriety. So reporting kind of creates those copycat events. It's so creepy and so interesting to think about it. One term that gets thrown around is social contagion. And it's kind of like it makes humankind seem like an ant, like as opposed to individuals thinking with total control of their own faculties, we're so influenced by our neighbor or by what we're seeing. Yeah, like so the idea of a social contagion is the behaviors or emotions that you see or are alongside you, you are likely to absorb. And and we see that everywhere. Um, fads, the idea of fads, but bell bottoms or some of these crazy things that you look at your parents, uh, some of their photos from 20 years ago. And you laugh at them, but you're doing crazy things too, and it's because it's normal at the time. And that's the result. The result is a snowball effect. So the snowball effect being once uh, gun violence is kind of snowballing out of control with related to school shootings, people are seeing this behavior, and it's just kind of becoming more commonplace and becoming more acceptable in their uh, in their minds. And that in of itself is difficult, the whole contagion aspect. But then it becomes highly dramatized on the news. So young, unstable people are like flies to a light when they see this. It's it's an incredible way to go out. And that's the thing is like, is one of the solutions to lowering school shootings. Do we have to change the way that we're reporting on these school shootings? Do we have to change the way that we're having this conversation in order to prevent more from happening? Do we not mention these individuals' names when we're doing the reporting so that they don't get their notoriety? Do we focus more on the victims and the way that we're reporting this? Like, don't plaster their pictures all over the news. And I feel like it's a conversation that we've been having for years, but we haven't done anything on it. We haven't changed the way that we're reporting. And I guess, like, we can't really, from a free speech perspective, I guess we can't control these news agencies, but it would be a wonderful experiment to try it. Right. Like, I think we do need to try and make that change as a society of not giving the notoriety to these vicious human beings. And let, let it go like that for a few years and see truly if these events dwindle. Absolutely. So one of the reasons why it's so hard to sift through the data and misinformation is that it's so pervasive. I feel like it's trying to just plug a leak but every time you plug a leak a new one springs out and you keep following down this rabbit hole of misinformation and it just leads to another piece of misinformation so you just kind of get desensitized to it at one point and one case in point is uh, a phrase that i've heard a lot this mass shootings or school shootings are a uniquely american event and it's misleading because it sounds almost like that doesn't happen anywhere else and that mass killings in general don't happen anywhere and really Absolutely. I'm not disputing the fact that America is really high on the list and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything about it. But when you significantly manipulate data to support a particular cause, it undermines people's trust in that data and it even undermines your own agenda. If we don't feel like we can trust the data, how are we going to get anything done? Because you're not going to be able to bring anybody to your side. So I dug in a little bit to this mass school shootings being a uniquely American event and in this data, I'm finding example after example of international school shootings, mass shootings, bombings in other countries. And kind of anecdotally, it seems like bombings are way more prevalent, specifically school bombings and mass bombings in other countries than it is in the United States. Again, that's anecdotal, but that's from the data that I could find. And if you look at a percentage of the population, rather than just looking at it in a total, that list becomes very different. America isn't on top anymore. You have countries from South America, Central America, Middle Eastern countries, particularly with school shootings that go higher than America, right? Honduras, it's so commonplace for there to be school shootings, it barely even makes the news cycle. So when we say that mass shootings are a uniquely American event, that's not true uh, statistically. And it's even more dishonest when, like you said earlier in that CNN poll, talking about school gun crime where 
we're on the top of the list, but then the caveat down below is, you know, the other data from other countries is not quite reliable. They don't report as, as well. So we all know that information. And instead of saying that up front, we're promoting mass shooting and school shootings are uniquely an American event. And also with this, it is not a uniquely American event, but we don't want to be talking and having a conversation where we're like, oh, we're third on the list. We we should really be sixth on the list. With these particular statistics, you want to be near the very bottom. Like that's your goal. Your goal is to eliminate gun violence. This is more a conversation around let's make sure we're using accurate data so that people can trust your data. Because if you don't, you're undermining yourself. And there's a wide swath of people who would just say screw it all together because you're not telling us the truth and we know that. So then now the citizenry is less likely to listen to policy proposals to make things better when the stats coming out about what's going on don't feel true. It seems like it's more important to shame us all to thinking we're doing terribly as opposed to here's an honest result of where we're at and we can aim for something better, but it's just like sheer shaming or ridiculing. I don't know. Maybe that gets more clicks. <laughs> so speaking of shaming and ridiculing, um, there was a really terrible poll on gun violence that was conducted by CBS and there were major headlines from this poll across CNN, NBC, CBS. It was run pretty much everywhere. Some of the titles were 40% of Republicans say that mass shootings are just something we have to live with in a free society. Yikes. Which it makes Republicans sound despicable and callous and like they don't care about it at all if you just read that headline. But if you look into it a little bit more and you look at the actual poll itself, the way that the poll is phrased is awful. It's terrible. It's putting words into people's mouths. They're using phraseology that intentionally sounds psychotic. So the, the poll basically says, are mass shootings something we can prevent and stop if we really tried? That sounds like a rational response. And then unfortunately have to accept as a part of free society. No matter how this poll shakes out, it's a lose-lose situation for Republicans. So either you're not accurately representing what your thoughts are, or you sound like a, a sociopath. And at that point, if someone is reading this, after that, any Republican that has an idea of a policy change, you're remembering that Republicans think that this is just something we need to do. You're not actually going to look at anything from that side as genuinely trying to help or improve things. Well, and in a lot of these articles, they don't even show the poll itself. They just sure. list that phrase. And ideally, if you have a poll, maybe you list several options, right? Yet, sure, you can have, you know, can prevent and stop if we really tried. But maybe some of the other options are mass shootings would not be prevented by the gun control measures that Democrats support. Or a middle ground option that says can be reduced, but will never be eliminated entirely. Those answers sound way more rational and wouldn't make this poll be completely a, just a partisan thing where it almost seems like they have the headlines already written before they even conduct the poll. And it just kind of goes right to the intentional division by the media. And I want to be clear on that. This was very intentional. Like CBS didn't make this poll and be like, oh, whoops, I, I probably should have phrased that better. Like they did this on purpose. They wanted this to be a divisive poll that is casting a particular group of people as the crazy people. And that's exactly what they did. The conclusion being Democrats are trying to fix this and Republicans are okay with the way things are. And the rest of the poll I looked through and it had questions that were just very deliberately planning Democrat versus Republican issues and designed in a way to make Republicans look bad. And I'm not saying that Republicans or Democrats are right in this scenario, but I am saying that if the news outlets are intentionally skewering one side you're not going to bring the parties together. You're not going to bring America together. You're going to sow division, um, and that's just going to continue. I also find that the conversation around gun control seems to lose the forest through the trees or focus on the wrong concepts, as we've already touched on a bit. What's really difficult, and I personally have, I struggle with this, is where we want to draw the lines between rights and safety in a society. When you talk about gun control, for so many people, usually on the right side of the aisle, if it goes up against the Second Amendment in any way or talks about taking any guns off the streets, that's the end of the conversation. And I know many countries don't look at guns as a right. And there's some that had looked at it that way and then has kind of 
change the general perspective on what that means. Like I think Australia is one of them where they were more along the lines of how we were in the U.S. about guns being a right. And over the previous few years, they've really changed the way they they perceive that. And that's what it really comes down to is where do we find that balance? And I think if you ask both sides about what they believe in, they're going to believe in the same things. They want to protect individual liberties and they want to increase safety for all of its citizens. Like these are fundamental beliefs that both sides are going to agree on. No matter, unless you're a sociopath, um, you're going to agree on these two things. The true conversation is where do we draw the line to make sure that we're that we're supporting people's safety while also supporting their rights? Because you can draw that line in indiscriminately anywhere. But how are we deciding on where to draw that line where it's a, a perfect balance between making sure that we're not infringing on people's rights, but also making sure that we're um, not exposing people to danger that they shouldn't be? So when we discuss rights, I, I know some countries have been able to change the discussion where it's guns are discussed more as a privilege that you have earned as opposed to just some inalienable right that you have. And I think most people might actually like the way that is discussed at this point in history, but it has to be talked about delicately. Yeah. And so that kind of brings us right into the discussion around when we're talking about uh, rights and gun ownership, what are the reasons for gun ownership? Like what, what can we say to defend gun rights? In a Gallup poll conducted in 2019, showed that self-defense was the most consistently provided answer at 63%. Hunting and recreation uh, was a reason provided that that came through at 51%. Occupation-related was 5%, and those were the top three reasons that were given. And interestingly, in that poll, there was no option for defense against government tyranny, um, Mm because I feel like that is one that is coming up far more often right now, which, I mean, we can kind of get into that a little bit more later. But that same Gallup poll uh, indicated that about half of adults say that there would be fewer mass shootings if um, it was harder for people to obtain guns legally, whereas about the same amount, 42% said that this would make no difference, and 9% said that there would be more mass shootings. So That basically, last bit's a little strange. Yeah, but it, basically, it just means that it's split 50-50 right down the middle in the country, uh, half of people saying that there would be fewer mass shootings, half of people saying that it wouldn't make a difference. So we don't really have a clear view of where to go. (laughs) Right. Well, and it just kind of uh, underscores the division in the country. But even though we have that division, the majority of both parties favor two policies um, that would restrict gun access, preventing those with a mental illness from purchasing a gun. 85% of Republicans and 90% of Democrats support that. And subjecting private gun sales and gun uh, show sales to background checks. So closing that background check loop, 70% of Republicans uh, support that and 92% of Democrats. So the majority of Americans in both parties support these two gun measures completely. Why are these not gun laws right now? Right? <laughs> we have bipartisan support across the aisle from Democrats and Republicans saying, we agree with these policies. How on earth have these not been passed yet? Like, I, I really don't understand that. There's really no reason why these shouldn't be a thing. And to reiterate, it's preventing those with mental illnesses from purchasing guns, one, and subjecting private gun sales and gun show sales to background checks. Almost everybody wants those two things. And I, I get that there are nuances that we have to work through, right? Because things like red flag laws, you want to make sure that that list isn't being used or manipulated for, um, you know, preventing certain people from getting guns. But I just feel like this is a clear example where politicians aren't representing the will of the people because they're playing politics, they're playing games, they're, they're trying to make sure that they get their different packages that have nothing to do with gun control passed. And I feel like Democrats are saying, you have to pass the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle all at once, or we're, we won't do anything at all on it. And then Republicans are saying, I don't want to pass any of these things at all, because if I do pass any of these things, then my constituents are going to vote me out. But it makes no sense because the majority of the population supports it on both parties. So that grinds my gears, clearly. (laughs) Other proposals that bring out stark partisan rifts, though, 
80% or more of Democrats favor creating a federal database to track all gun sales and ban both assault-style weapons and high-capacity ammunition magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. Uh, and majority of the majority of Republicans r- oppose those proposals. Yeah. Immediately when you mention a, a database of anything, the hairs on the back of my neck just stand up. doesn't matter if it has to do with guns or anything else. It's like just tracking anything related to an individual person just seems a little bit uh, rife for manipulation. And I think most gun crime occurs with a pistol or a handgun. So understandably so, the other aspect, banning assault-style weapons, and then also high-capacity ammunition magazines, that people can easily get around that, or you can carry more magazines on you. Anyway, most Republicans, on the other hand, support allowing people to carry concealed guns in more places, that's 72%, and allow teachers and school officials to carry guns in K through 12 schools. That's 66%. And both those proposals are supported by under 25% of Democrats, respectively. And those statistics aren't necessarily surprising to me. I, I think I was more surprised by the things that are universally agreed upon because it's hard to get Americans to agree, <laughs> agree on anything um, by more than like 60% these kind of fell in line with what my expectations are. Absolutely. Um, And since we're talking about policies, we can kind of look at some of the policies that other countries have used who have the fewest gun-related deaths per 100,000. According to a Business Insider article, Australia did a gun buyback program where they paid citizens to sell their guns to the government. Um, Over the next few years, gun death totals were cut almost in half. So uh, significantly cut down on both suicides and homicides. And can I say how classy that is? Because if it was a mandatory thing, so many people would be up in arms about an overly authoritarian government. But it was like, I I think it was voluntary and people were paid. And that's just beautiful. I feel like that's just a great way to approach it. Yeah, it's... It's kind of a double-edged sword, though, because the argument that people have against the gun buyback program is that law-abiding citizens are going to be the ones that sell their guns back, and obviously criminals aren't going to go to the government and sell their guns back. So the argument is that it's not effective because you're you're not cleaning up the streets, so to speak. You're just taking guns from law-abiding citizens. It seems like it worked out in Australia. Which but- is incredible, but then we decided to look up what that meant for total <laughs> crime overall. Right, because we talked about earlier the connection between gun-related crime and just crime in general that didn't involve a gun. And if you look at Australia's homicides in total and not just gun-related homicides, there is an initial kind of dip immediately afterwards. But then we saw that from the time that the gun buyback program was implemented to now, the per 100,000 number of homicides, non-gun-related just overall, increased by approximately 35%. So kind of frustrating actually. Yeah, so it's one of those things where like yeah, you can look at this gun related statistics and say yeah, gun violence decreased, but if stabbings and bludgeonings and beatings and bombings and etc all increased to offset that, it just highlights the human depravity overall and just kind of shows that doing the gun buyback program didn't necessarily accomplish what they were hoping. And then also we have um Japan, so another country, puts citizens through a rigorous set of tests where essentially if they want to own a gun, they have to attend an all-day class, pass a written test, uh, achieve 95% accuracy at a shooting range test, pass a mental health evaluation at a hospital, a background check, including interviews with friends and family members. So I I will say that's amazing. I'm from Massachusetts, and I got my LTC a few years ago, and... I was in and out of a class. I think it was like an hour and a half or two hours. We did not actually physically shoot any guns. And then I had a simple 20 to 30 minute interview with a police officer in my local town. And that was it. And that's Massachusetts. I would say that it's even easier in a lot of states. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the article, they say that, quote, seldom has more than 10 shooting deaths a year in a population of 127 million people occurred in Japan. And I'm sorry, if you believe that less than 10 people were killed by guns in all of Japan in one particular year, I've got a bridge that I would like to sell you. (laughs) This is clearly a statistic that's manipulated by the government who is a, a very authoritarian government and has a history of manipulating data in the past. 
So the thing that I really question is why would anybody even really use this in their arguments, this particular statistic? I won't say that, you know, maybe these gun measures are are effective in reducing overall gun crime. But if you use a, a real or more realistic statistic, you could probably get more people to actually kind of go along with your particular views. But when you use this like conflated, clearly fake and manipulated data, you know, you, you lose people. They lost me on it, right? Yeah. So. No, that's clearly a fake number. But another bit of credit to give to Japan would be the, the punishment side of it. Um, they just have as well as stringent rules to obtain a gun in the first place. They don't allow any handguns at all. And you can be put in prison for up to 10 years if you have one. You can't pass down uh, guns to your next of kin. So there's there's just strong penalties in general in Japan. So it would make sense that they would have low shooting deaths. But yeah, it is comical that 10 a year would be. And, it, and it's also it goes along with the same thing that we talked about with Australia. Sure. Let's even say that that 10 per year is true that is completely removed from the total number of violent crime-related deaths per year. So it's one of those things where when you look at it individually, sure, it might seem like a good thing, but then you might also realize that people are just finding another way to commit the crimes and atrocities that they want to just with other means. Sure thing. New Zealand also instituted a ban on most semi-automatic rifles after a mass shooting left 51 people dead and dozens were injured in March of 2019. So it was a self-professed white supremacist, and he targeted two mosques on a Friday evening with semi-automatic weapons. They can only buy shotguns and air rifles in New Zealand. There's no handguns as well as Japan, like we mentioned. And uh, I guess actually semi-automatic gun owners had to surrender them. It wasn't a buyback. It wasn't voluntary. It was it was mandatory. And this was an interesting part. They have to retake their licensure class every three years after obtaining it which is is are there um restrictions on that in the united states to have to retake it so i do have my ltc uh, that means license to carry if you don't know and i think every five years you have to re-up but i don't think you have to redo retake the exam you just I, like I think it's submitting a, paperwork a or a fee and, yeah. yeah absolutely yeah. gotcha and it's actually kind of funny i remember when i did get my ltc this is years ago i the the guy that I think I took the test through coached me to make sure I wrote down <laughs> my reasons was for all lawful purposes as yeah. opposed to anything specific. Yeah, I got my my blue card in Rhode Island uh, years back and uh, it was kind of the same thing, right? You go to take your test and <laughs> it was almost like you had your friend there to help you cheat on the exam. You'd go to put your pencil down on the wrong answer and they'd be like, ah, and then you, you know, you pull your pencil back. <laughs> um, so it's definitely not a, a stringent exam and you almost have like a, a buddy there to help you uh, pass the pass the exam. Which makes it a joke at that point. Yeah. Well, is the blue card akin to an LTC? No, it's not like it's not licensed to carry. It's um, your ability to purchase a gun. So you can go and purchase a gun, but you can't carry it concealed um, around. And that's in Rhode Island. And honestly, that was now uh, definitely over a decade ago. So it might might have changed. And then um, Norway is another country that has really restricted gun ownership. And it's seemingly pretty obvious. It was after a massacre of 77 people in 2011. There's actually a great documentary about it. It's not great. It's terrible to watch, but it's called 22 July. It outlines what happened on, on that day. And many years later, but it was 2018 when they finally were able to get some kind of drastic gun policy enacted and it was to ban all semi-automatic guns by 2021 except for hunting and sport i also i thought that was interesting because that poll we talked about earlier about people's reasons for having a gun over over 50 percent of people mentioned it was for self-defense and that seems like an obvious first reason to have it so it's odd to me that a country would only allow guns for hunting and sport well and how do you even categorize that like yeah. if somebody wants it for self-defense couldn't they just say i would like to buy this because i'd like to go hunt yes like that seems like a completely unenforceable thing yeah and so that's kind of uh, an outlook or an overview of the different laws or regulations that you can implement in order to restrict gun violence the national rifle association had an article about why gun control doesn't work so kind of 
going against the grain with what these different countries were doing. You know, their main reasons were saying things like criminals don't obey the gun laws. The vast majority of criminals obtain their firearms through non-legal means. They indicate that background checks as they currently exist aren't effective, so you're not going to identify those individuals that are most likely to commit those crimes. And they indicated that crime goes down when good guys have guns. Uh, essentially, it's the the good guy with a gun uh, pro- thought process. We've heard all of those lines for years. Those are very popular, good talking points. I wonder how accurate that is or if that's mostly anecdotal. Well, and it's tough, too, because so much of this data is macro in nature. You can kind of only pull this information or these statistics from a broad swath or a, a large group of people. So they used a lot of statistics in their, in their article. They indicated over the past three decades from 1991 to 2019 that violent crime rates have dropped by more than half. And in that same time frame, privately owned firearms have doubled in that period. So they're essentially saying there are more guns out there and violent crime decreased over this period of time. But that's just such fluffy data. You know, it's not necessarily causation. It's just kind of correlation and it's at a very, very high level. So it's hard to say that those go hand in hand. Um, right. They also you know, included some other things like the number of people carrying a firearm for protection outside of their home has increased as violent crime has dropped. Mass murderers have repeatedly been deterred or stopped by citizens carrying lawfully concealed firearms. The one statistic that I thought was really interesting was a major study of 2,000 felons in state and federal prisons indicated in a poll that they feared armed citizens more than they feared the police. The American part of me loves that. (laughs) So that was interesting because you're going right to the source of people who would be committing a crime and they're indicating that they are afraid of the good guy with a gun, quote unquote. We do see all the time in the news that police are being restricted um, with what they can do and i think it's now in the ether that criminals know that that cops actually don't have too much power to maybe make the right move for fear of repercussion or something so one one of the things that they had stated too in that article was cities that have the strictest gun control laws have the highest crime rates and so their solution is crime control rather than gun control and i think there is definitely some credence to that because as we had looked at kind of at the top of this episode violent crime in general kind of goes hand in hand with gun crime. They increase and decrease along with each other. So I do think that's kind of a valid point that they bring up. However, there are kind of the holes that you can poke in the argument where you say, sure, Chicago might have the strictest gun control laws, but maybe those guns are purchased in Texas where the gun laws are you know, more lenient and those guns are trafficked up to Chicago and used in violent crimes there. So it's just one of those things where like, it makes the discussion pretty difficult because a lot of the data here is what I like to refer to as fuzzy data. It's not it's not a clear-cut thing a lot of the time. You're making a judgment call based off of this data that you're kind of hoping is the most accurate. So we've talked through statistics on crime, gun crime, and policies purported to solve or at least attempt to decrease these problems. Next time, we'll discuss the history of guns and gun control, and we'll look at what those in power are saying about it. You know, we thought we'd be a one episode per topic enterprise, but seemingly so far, we do have way too much to say. We'll try to reel it in. I don't know. (laughs) We're definitely always going to have too much to say. It's probably true. In the meantime, we would love to hear your feedback. Topics for a new episode, maybe. Feel free to leave a review on any of the major podcasting platforms. Follow us on Twitter at Reel It In Podcast or email us at Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. See you in part two.